thank you for coming this morning. I know a lot of us have been struggling with um, illnesses, and I just got a text from someone else who's sick today, so let's keep our sisters uh, in prayer for healthy recovery, shall we? Um, it's good to be here this morning, and uh, we're going to start... We're going to start real quick. Um, Dana, how is Nick doing? He's doing well. Thank you very much. Okay. He just had surgery. So, wow. Recovered. Nice to see you today. All right, ladies. Let's go ahead and, as we do every time, let's look at the back of our Wellspring binders. And we're going to review why we are here. Let's review our purpose. Why are we here in Wellspring? Uh, our purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And then discipline one. Take a look. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the Word of God and in particular the gospel. I've been in Wellspring um, a lot of years. You know, and one thing that um, being here that it's taught me is that, ladies, I must not listen to my heart. And I must not follow my heart, as the world popularly says. You know, what must I do instead? Right? I've got to shepherd my heart right. You know, because I'm not even totally aware of how forgetful I am. I'm not. And how prone I am to deceiving myself. You know, thank God for this. There are many things that God uses in my life to remind me of that. One of the things he chooses to use with me is um, my furniture. It's kind of funny, but, you know, in general, you could say, I keep my household pretty picked up. I keep it pretty tidy. And as a general rule, I'm pretty satisfied with how clean it is. You know, that is until I sit down on my sofa and I take a look, um, say at my dining room table or my chairs, and all of a sudden, um, all that dust that I didn't see when I was over there, but I see now it's all there. And you know what? That dust, it didn't just like magically appear, did it? It was there all along, wasn't it? Um, but I just didn't see it until it was exposed. Um, suddenly, once I see how things really are, it just makes it easy to understand that that's how it is with me with my heart. You know, here I was deceiving myself that my house is clean, that I better get busy and get dusting. Okay, lesson learned, right? You know, that's why I'm thankful for furniture and windows and sunlight and, and even dust, because it reminds me that I have to saturate myself daily in the Word of God so that the light of the truth can shine through the window of my thinking. And it can expose areas in my thinking that need to be dusted off or adjusted or just plain 
gotten rid of. You know, I need God's truth permeating my thoughts, don't I? You know, and having God's word just in my mind, going around in my mind all the time, what will that do? You know, that's going to affect everything, isn't it? My conversations that I have with myself and the way that I minister then to my household and beyond. (coughs) You know, the fact is, ladies, the way that we do discipline one, it affects the way we do all the other disciplines, doesn't it? Let's look at discipline two, the home. She ministers to those in her household with a heart for the gospel. Okay, so since God cares about the kind of people we are in Christ, as we shepherd our hearts with his word, we need to be clear. Okay, we've heard the term household a lot, but let's stop right now and be clear. Make sure we know what we're talking about. Because households, it doesn't just talk about people who are married or people with children, right? You know, because um, ministering um, to our household with the heart for God and for the gospel, it's just, it's not something like a light switch that you can just turn on if and when. You have children someday, or you get married, you know, and have children someday. So wherever you are on the household continuum, let's call it, wherever you are, from living under your parents' roof to having a house full of kids to being an empty nester to being alone, wherever you are, anywhere in between, we've got to wear a heart of a gospel bearer. We must. See, we have to make sure that we're aware that our household is never a place where selfishness can take root. It just isn't. So now um, let's think about this. Ephesians 5.25 says we're a body. We belong to one another. We need to speak truth to one another. Hey, don't you find that the truth you speak to one another is kind of like what you said, Diana? It's those things that you've been thinking about, meditating on, the things that you've read in your Bible reading that day or yesterday or the week before, those are the things that I use to shepherd my heart, to build other people up. It's a precious gift. It's a privilege. It's one of the richest blessings from getting the most out of our Bible reading. And that's what I've been talking about, Discipline 3, isn't it? Let's take a look at it. Discipline 3, Ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, what does she do? She steps into the church to shepherd others toward the gospel. So just as I said a minute ago, that shepherding others with the gospel oftentimes happens when you've been saturating yourself in the word and you have that truth. And as Diana said, you might not know exactly word for word, but you have the idea, you have the truth, and you can share that with other people. So let me ask you, how are you doing? How are you doing? 
in your Bible reading? How are you getting the most out of your Bible reading? How are you doing that? Hopefully you've had some time to practice, put into practice what we learned last time. You know, because I don't know about you, but there are some days where I'm reading my Bible and I'm fully alert and I'm fully involved. And then there are other days where it seems that, you know, I know that there are words on that page. I I saw them, but I close my Bible and, and I think, what did I just read? I don't know. There's some days where I, my mind, I just like, it's running away from me. I have to constantly grab it, you know, and drag my thoughts back. Um, there are some days like that. Um, and so today what I'm going to do is I'm going to build on what Jacob um, taught us last time. So I'm going to give us some tools that will really help us to internalize what we read and to give some staying power to it. Um, And so these are two reading strategies we're going to talk about. Um, One of them is what you do before you read. We're familiar with that. We talked about that last time. And then one of them is what you do after you read. And these are nothing new, nothing fancy. You probably learned these when you were in elementary school. So I'm just reminding you of what you already know. So the first one is what, what we learned last time. And that's called restating or summarizing the text. And so I know some of you have been doing this because I've been getting some texts from some of you. Very encouraging. So let's remind ourselves, how do we do it? Well, like many of you, I'm in four different places in my Bible reading plan. And so what I do after each little section that I'm reading, all I do is I try to restate or summarize what I just read. You've been doing that, right? Hopefully you have. And so I ask myself, okay, so what did I just learn? And I try to summarize that. Um, in a sentence or two, Jacob suggested we write it down. Um, and you know what? I asked myself, could I tell my Wellspring sister what I just read? Could I tell my friend? Could I tell someone in my household what I just read today? And um, I don't let myself get up from that chair until I can do that. So it takes a little extra time, but it's worth it. You know, it really helps me pay attention um, because I know I have to answer that question. All right, so let's talk about what we do after we read, and that's number two. And um, I'm sorry, this is before we read. Now we're going to talk about what we do before we read. This is called setting the purpose for reading. So before you open your Bible, what you're doing is you're formulating or you're articulating the reason why you're reading the text. Now, we already know the biggie, right? The main reason why we're in the Word every day. And we're in the Word of God to get to know the God of the Word. That's the biggie. That's why we are in the Word every day. And you know, having this in the forefront of my mind, it keeps me alert during those passages that I might be tempted to think are a little dry, you know, the ones I'm talking about, like um, the regulations for leprosy. 
or um, the genealogies, you know, some of those, t- those things are tough. <laughs> but it also helps me when I'm in a passage that's so rich. I mean, every single word is, is huge, and it's almost overwhelming. So it helps me with those rich passages as well. So if I set the purpose, if I look for a theme, let's call it, while I'm doing my daily reading, like looking for the glory of God, which is one of the things I love to do, um, I am. I'm more alert, and I'm delighted to notice, hey, it was here in the Old Testament, and it's in the New Testament, and it was in that psalm, and it was in Proverbs today, and it's woven all through the Bible. And so let me ask you to just think about giving this a try. And to help you, we've put together some theme suggestions. And they're on one of your handouts. And all the instructions are written there. And some of your homework even has you um, taking a look at that. So please, ladies, read it thoroughly when you get home. Um, Maybe you can even talk about it in your discussion groups. But I want you to get this. There's no pressure here. But we're just asking you to carefully, prayerfully consider whether choosing a theme might be helpful for you. Ladies, let's remember it's just a tool. There are no rules, which is fun. There are only suggestions. You know, and it can be something as little as just looking for the theme that you've chosen, and when you find it, just stop and think about it. It can be as simple as that. And you know, if you have more time, You could maybe underline it when you come across it or put a little mark in the margin. And if that's all the time you have, good. Because looking for the theme, that's really going to help you. And then if you have even more time, you'd really benefit from doing this, um, from writing down your observations in a journal. You know, because what you're doing is you're just adding another layer of involvement. And you're better equipped then to retain what you've learned. And so either way, because you're on the lookout, you'll be amazed at how many places your theme appears. So I encourage you, make it your own. Have fun with it. Make it work for you so that you're gleaning the most that um, you're getting in your time in the Word. And we have, um, if you want one, we have a lot of different theme journals for you, and you can take one, um, if you haven't already picked one, you can take one during break or um, on your way out the door, on your way home. Well, today's lesson, let's set the purpose for today's lesson, since I just talked about that. Today we're going to be in um, doing a survey It's a whole Bible survey. Um, We're not just going to be in one place. We're going to be all through the Bible. We're going to be looking for nine categories to help us see God's heart in Scripture for household relationships. Okay, our our purpose in doing a, a survey and not just staying in one passage is because we want to get God's whole heart for the household. We want to make sure that our thinking is aligned to God's thinking, not just 
well, what do I think about the household, but what does God say about the household? Um, it's not an exhaustive study, although we're going pretty fast, so we may be exhausted <laughs> when we're finished. Um, but and as we go make our way from left to right, um, I want you to think of me kind of as your tour guide, okay? And we're not going to take a leisurely stroll, so get your best walking shoes on. We're going to power walk through these. Um, but we want to make sure we don't just power walk through those verses that are really familiar to us. So we're going to stop and we're going to just take a look and so that we can be reminded and encouraged to persevere in the call and the privilege, ladies, the privilege of having Christ-centered households. So before we do all that, and that's huge, we better pray. Shouldn't we? And ask God's help for that. So let's pray. Father, thank you, first of all, for giving us your word, for putting us here on this earth with a book that is from you, that displays your heart for us, for our homes. Thank you. And Lord, as we unwrap these verses and as we go through them, would you just tap us on the shoulder when we need to just rein in our thoughts and, and go, oh, wow, this is new or this is important. This is something I need to take a look at and maybe dust off or throw out altogether. And, and where we're doing well, help us, Lord, rejoice. Help us get away from this lesson more aware of your heart. Let, let us desire what you desire. Let us delight in what you delight in and nothing else. We need you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's... Yes. Thank you. Let's go ahead and start by looking at Mosaic Law. So we are um, in Exodus 20, first on your outline there. Now we're probably all very familiar with the Ten Commandments. And right now, we're going to focus on, when we look at some of these commandments, we're going to be focusing on what God is revealing between the connection about the connection between the heart and the household. That's our purpose for today. So by the time the Bible gets to verse 12 in Exodus 20, we are right in the middle of the Ten Commandments. And look at Exodus 20:12 with me. It says, Honor your father and mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. So you see here the first human relationship that God's concerned with, that he deals with. You see it's the parent-child relationship, right? Okay, let's take a look at his second concern here. The concern for marriage, the husband-wife household relationships. That's in verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. You'll also notice God is concerned with the neighbor's household. Let's look at Exodus 20:17, a few verses down. 
You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Okay, that's really specific, right? There's no way to miss that. We're to focus on being content with our own households, right? So here's the key point. That God wants his children to think rightly about the household and everything and everyone in and associated with that household. No exceptions. Deuteronomy 4 is next, 9 and 10. Now, as you're turning there, you'll remember that Israel is not allowed to go to the promised land. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because they were sinful and they were unbelieving and they were grumbling. And that generation now has died off. And Moses is speaking to the next generation on the plains of Moab at the end of that 40-year period. He's giving them a heavy dose of instruction one more time before they enter the promised land. So we're going to look at the disciplines as we read this. Uh, Verse 9, only give heed to yourself to keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things that your eyes have seen. See discipline one here, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. So he's saying, shepherd your hearts, people. Why? So they don't forget. Okay, what are they supposed to do instead of forgetting? Do you see it? Make them known to your sons and your grandsons. That's discipline too. Verse 10. Remember the day you stood before the Lord, your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me that I might let them hear my words so that they learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach to their, they may teach their children. Again, discipline too. So God's intent early on was Israel, look, you better take care of your heart and you better help your family. All right, two chapters over, chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. We're going to, again, notice those disciplines. We'll start with verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, there it is, and with all your soul and with all your might. See, everything in your inner being needs to be given over to the love of the Lord. Everything. Let's look at verse 6. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Let's notice how God connects love for him with his word, right? Because you can't love God apart from his word informing that love, can you? All right, let's look what he says next. And look how specific the instructions are here. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently 
to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, and you shall bind them as signs on your head, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Okay, you see how discipline one and discipline two are linked, right? They're inseparable. Let's review what we just learned. Let's put it in a different way. Summarize. Say, what's God doing? He's instructing Israel to saturate their hearts and their homes with the treasure of God's word, right? He's saying, Israel, everything you do in your homes, from lying down when you go to sleep to getting up, um, from just walking uh, along the way and talking, as you leave your houses and you're headed out for the day, there is the word of God. It's supposed to be there. And then as you come home, there is the word of God, right? Your household's Israel, your household is to be actually dominated by the word of God. That's what he's saying. Wow. Let's look at, bless you, Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5. We're going to see another requirement that God places on the older generation. So in verses 1 through 3, what's happening there is the Israelites are told that when they enter the promised land, they're supposed to destroy the inhabitants totally, make no treaty with them, don't show them any mercy. They're supposed to destroy all their idolatry. Don't, don't leave a speck of it. Let's look at verse 3. He says, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. What's God saying? He's saying, don't even let these kinds of mixed households begin. Don't let it. Why? Why not? Look at verse 4. What's going to happen? They turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Yikes. They pull your heart away from Yahweh. So let's put a little asterisk there on your outline. Deuteronomy 7, 4. Um, because we're going to see it played out in the history of Israel later on in the lesson. All right, let's notice those dire consequences of allowing sons and daughters to intermarry those of another God. It's in verse 4, the last part of it. What will happen? Deuteronomy 7, 4b. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. What's the key point? Discipline one impacts discipline two. If you love the Lord your God, and if his word is on your heart, then you are to take it into your home. But you know what? The passage also says the other way around is true. The household impacts your heart, right? If you get the wrong kind of household, it can lead your heart astray. We're going to turn now to the Psalms. Next on your outline, Psalm 78, 1 through 8. As you're finding it, 
The psalmist is expressing the obligation that one generation has to tell the next generation about the Lord. It's a really good example, ladies, of that inseparable connection between how I shepherd my heart and the impact that my heart shepherding makes on the next generation. So let's read it, and let's just kind of notice all the generations he's talking about here. All right, uh, Psalm 78, verse 1. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from from their children. But tell to the next generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know that uh, might know even the children yet to be born that they may arise, I love this, children aren't even born yet, but the idea is that those kids would arise and tell them to their children. Wow, that's a lot of generations. Let's see. So we've got the ancestors, and then we've got the people in that current generation, and then we have the people to be born, and then the ones to be born, the grandchildren, (laughs) right? So that's four generations. And what should they teach? First of all, they're told, don't conceal it. I like that word. That's one to think about for a little while. How am I concealing? We wouldn't purposely do that. But what are they to teach? Look at verse 7. That they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Wow. Look at verse 8. And not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation that did not prepare its heart. See? That takes a little planning, doesn't it? It takes a purpose. Did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. What about you ladies? How would you like it in years to come if somebody says, about us. Oh, don't follow your grandma's example because they didn't follow the Lord. Right? Yikes. Look how God describes their hearts in verse 8. Look what God says. They're stubborn, rebellious, unprepared, unfaithful. See, that generation failed in discipline one big time, didn't they? Big time. And what were the consequences? They quickly forgot God. They became disloyal to him. So that's why we can't just power walk right by this passage, ladies. Because even though it addresses Israel, the principles apply to us believers today. So we need to know that God cares about our hearts and the impact that our heart shepherding has on the next generation. And that's why we cannot separate God's concern for our hearts with his concern for our homes. 
We can't. See, and we're all, none of us are off the hook. Okay, so if you don't have, you're not married and you don't have kids, you're not off the hook because we're all responsible. You are, I am. We're all responsible to teach that, um, to declare the truths of God to whom? Ourselves first, right? And to the next generation. So just think the impact and the influence we can have with kids in our home, in our family, kids we invest in here at church, our small group, a friend's child. You know, you can invest in my grandkids and I and somebody else's. Yay. See, we're all called to that huge responsibility and privilege. Let's not forget it's a privilege. All right, let's go to the New Testament now. Okay, let's go to Ephesians 6, another familiar passage, 1 through 4. We're going to see here how God addresses this inseparable relationship between the heart and the home. So what we're seeing here is a repeat of that fifth commandment. Now it's brought under the authority of Jesus' regulations for the church. Now, these verses are all about the parent-child relationship from two different perspectives. So verses 1 through 3, they're from the child's perspective. So let's take a look at that. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Now let's look at verse 4 because this is from the father's perspective now. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So let's notice Paul's teaching both the children and he's teaching the parents. Because why? That's the way the Lord is honored, right? In the household. Okay, let's kind of recap it and restate it. What's another way we could say it? Okay. We could say, children, you are to shepherd your hearts in such a way that you are able to obey and honor your parents. And parents, you are to shepherd your own hearts in such a way so that you, verse 4, do not provoke your children to anger. But parents, you're to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So here's the key point. God is demonstrating that even in the New Testament, ladies, the household relationships matter to him. Now, you're also very familiar on your outline because we've been kind of living here in Titus and 1 Timothy in, at church on Sundays. But next on your outline is 1 Timothy. You don't have to turn there if you don't want, but 1 Timothy 3, 4 through 5, it deals with elder qualifications. Mm-hmm. Um, and so let's just remind ourselves that this is where Paul instructs that a man needs to be able to be effective in his own house as a manager and a leader. Okay, why? Do you remember? Because that's the testing ground, isn't it? For determining 
if he's able to be qualified as an elder in the church, the household is the testing ground. Yay, we're in Titus right now on Sunday mornings, and we're going to turn to a very familiar passage, uh, Titus 2, 3 through 5. We're going to notice the emphasis on the household here. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Why? So that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, love their children. Do you see the household, the fingerprints of the household all over this? Be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, subject to their own husbands. This is the biggie. Scott's been really drilling us on this. Why? So that, yeah, the word, yeah, you can speak up. So that the word of God is not dishonored, right? It's the word of God. And here's the key point. A woman's faithfulness in the home is of great significance to the gospel because the way a woman shepherds her heart and her home impacts, what does it impact? The way others speak of the gospel, about God's word. That's huge. Okay, we're going back, back to the future, back to the Old Testament. We're going to be on number two on your outline, two Old Testament women who grasped God's heart for the home. Now, Ruth's life took place in the time of the judges before there was a king in Israel. Do you remember what the very last chapter of the book of Judges says? Um, the very last verse in the very last chapter, Judges, is the book right before Ruth. Yeah, everyone's smiling, or happy, <laughs> frowny face, frowny face, right? It's very sad. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's Judges twenty-one twenty-five. See, sadly, because there was no submission to authority, people, and this is really sad, even the priests did what they thought was right in their own eyes. And thus, sin ran rampant, didn't it? But you know what? In the midst of this really dark period of history, we get treated to a very virtuous woman, Ruth. That's our treat. Now, you may remember Ruth lives in troubled times of her own. She faces her own really terrible grief. Okay, what happened to her? Her husband is dead. Her brother-in-law is dead. And her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi, she decides to leave Moab and to go back to Bethlehem because the famine in Israel is over. You may remember Ruth is from Moab. Before Naomi leaves, she urges her two daughters-in-law to stay in their own land. Stay in Moab with your own people, your own language, your own culture, because who knows, ladies, in time, you may even find husbands of your own again. You know, so one daughter-in-law, Orpah, she takes her mother-in-law's advice, and she stays 
And you know what, ladies? We never hear anything about Orpah again, do we? But Ruth, what does she do? She's determined to cling to her mother-in-law. Look at with me at Ruth um, 1, 16 to 17, those famous words. She declares her loyalty to Naomi by saying, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And ladies, in those days, it really mattered where you were buried. That was really important to them. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death separates you and me. And when she saw, I mean, what could Naomi say? When she saw she was determined to go with her, Naomi said, she didn't say anything else. Wow. Do you get the importance of Ruth's decision from a household perspective? Let's look at it that way. See, she was demonstrating her love for God. But how? By caring for her household, right? See, how? How was she doing that? See, she was loving her widowed mother-in-law. And ladies, that mother-in-law, Naomi, she admitted it. She was a very bitter woman. She maybe wasn't too easy to be around because let's look at verse uh, at chapter one, verses nineteen through twenty-one. So they all they went back to Bethlehem, and when they got there, the city is stirred up because of them. And the women they all gather around. They go, "Hey!" And then they look and they go, "Is this Naomi?" And Naomi says. You know, she's got her claws out, right? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. You know, for the Lord has, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. All right, you know, have a good day. Sorry, I asked. Yikes. You know, but this proud woman, that's the one Naomi chooses to love. Wow, that's the family. I'm sorry, Ruth chooses to love. That's the family. See, even though she was a foreigner, and even though she had, she didn't have any guarantees she'd ever marry again or have children, her love for God drove her to love Naomi. It drove her to love her household. Wow. Well, we're not going to turn there um, to the next two references, Second Kings and Second Chronicles. But if you don't already know her, I want to introduce you to one of my favorite gals in the Bible. Her name is Jehoshabah. Sometimes you see her name written Jehoshabeth. Her story is two places, 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings. But for right now, ladies, we need to know she was a God-fearing aunt who grasped God's heart for the household, for the family. How did she do it? She risked her own life. Well, I'm not going to tell you anymore. You have to stay tuned. The little teaser there, because in a few minutes, we're going to find out what a heroine she really was. But right now, we just need to know that these two wonderful role models, Ruth 
and Jehoshaphat. We can really learn a lot from them. But sadly, we're going to meet some not-so-wonderful role models. We're going to move on to number three, Old Testament failures to grasp God's heart for the family and so the home and for the home. Okay, we were in Ruth. We're just going to go one book over to 1 Samuel. We're going to talk about Eli. We got to hear about Eli in our Hannah lesson. Now you may remember Eli is a priest in Shiloh and uh, you may also remember that he had two sons who were also priests. In 1 Samuel 2, we're going to see a huge heart problem that Eli's two sons had. Let's look at verses 12 through 17. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord and the custom of the priests with the people. Okay, so the verses go on to tell us how worthless they were as priests. So what happened? You know, when the worshipers would come to offer their sacrifices, these guys, they just helped themselves to whatever they wanted. You know, we need to know that the priest had a duty, and that was to burn the fat on the altar as an offering to the Lord, as per Leviticus 3.16. But these two bullies, what did they do? You know what? They didn't even do the dirty work. They made their servants do the dirty work. That's pretty low. Uh, They made their servants take the fat by force. So look at 15, verse 15. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat, only raw. Now, Of course, the worshiper knew this was wrong. Look at verse 16. If a man said to him, no, they must surely burn the fat first and then take as much as you desire. What, What did he say to him? No, give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by force. See, even though that was strictly forbidden for human consumption, and anyone who ate it was to be expelled from the people. The priests were going to eat that fat. And of course, God knows. God knows their heart. Look at verse 17. God says, they despised, yikes, they despised the offering of the Lord. Adding to their sin, look at verse 22. It says, they lay with women. Now their aged father, Eli, here we go. We're talking about Eli, really, because he's not off the hook. He hears about what their sons are doing, and he confronts them. But you know what? He throws them a softball. Look what he says, verse 23. Why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear? From all these people, no, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. Okay, but you know what, ladies, the sons wouldn't listen to Eli. They wouldn't listen, but it was Eli that the Lord held accountable. You know, and he confronts them. Look at verse 29. 
he says to Eli, why do you kick at my sacrifice? <coughs> Excuse me. And at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel. The key verse is that verse 29. Why do you honor your sons above me? See, Eli was letting his sons get away with it. Yeah, okay. To his defense, he did speak to them. He did. He said, guys, this is terrible. You shouldn't be doing this. But you know, he didn't remove them from serving as priests, did he? See, he's a sad example of a father and a spiritual leader for whom it was more important to please his sons than to please and honor God. So there are really two key points we've got to get here for ourselves. See, the first one is, I must not set my household so high that I would honor my family over God. That's the first thing we need to notice. And the second thing is that I must never forget that what I do with my heart impacts my household. See, that's discipline one impacting discipline two. Do you know what I do with my household? It impacts other believers, right? For good, yes, and for bad. And that's discipline two impacting discipline three. Okay, I got to drag us on. Another sad example, Solomon. He neglected discipline when we talked about this last time. Um, he brought great pain to his household in the nation. In 1 Kings 11, um, we remember, we talked about it last time, so we're just going to remember and remind ourselves of all the foreign wives that Solomon just gathered, right? Um, verse 2, God says, uh, he, from the nations, so he collected all these wives from nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. Why? They're going to turn your heart away after other gods. Okay, nevertheless, okay, Solomon knew that. Nevertheless, look what he chose to do. Solomon, held fast. Can you just imagine holding fast? He held fast to these in love. Yikes. Okay, and then we know how many wives he had and concubines and... Solomon was old. What happened? Verse 4. Yep, his heart turned away after other gods. Sure enough, his heart wasn't wholly devoted as the heart of David, his father, was. He held fast to those in love. Remember that little asterisk we put after at that Deuteronomy 7.3 passage there? What was the result? His heart was turned away from Yahweh after other gods look at verse 9 now the anger now the lord was angry with solomon because his heart was turned away from the lord the god of israel who appeared to him twice ladies six 
times in verses 1 through 4, and then in verse 9, that word heart appears. It's pretty important. Don't miss it. And after he died, you remember that the kingdom was divided. We've got the northern ten tribes, Israel, and we have the southern two tribes, known as Judah. And before we talk about Athaliah, who's next on your outline, we need to talk about her parents, her mommy and her daddy. Her dad, you, you remember he was king in Israel, northern tribe. His name, Ahab, and he took for his wife, Jezebel. You know, Jezebel was not a worshiper of Yahweh. Ahab knew full well God's concern for the household. He meant, don't marry foreign wives. Remember that little asterisk by Deuteronomy 7.3? But you know what? He was so used to idolatry already. Ladies, he didn't even flinch when deciding to take a foreign idol-worshipping princess for his wife. What do you remember about Jezebel? Hmm. Watch out, right? Don't get in her way. Stay away. Because she was a woman who had murder on her heart, right? Yikes. She was determined to destroy all worship of Yahweh. In Israel, by eradicating God's prophets. You may also remember she's the one who had Nabal uh, murdered for his vineyard. Well, hmm, what kind of lovely little offspring did these two wicked parents spawn, let's say? Let's find out. Well, they had a daughter named Athaliah, and they gave her in marriage to Jehoram. He was king in the southern kingdom. Don't turn there. I'm going to read 2 Kings 8.27. Let's notice the kind of influence these in-laws had on their house and their household had on their son-in-law, Jehoram. It says in uh, 2 Kings 8.27 about Jehoram, he walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord like the house of Ahab had done because he was son-in-law of the house of Ahab. So let's just recap because there's a lot of people here. Okay, So we have Queen Jezebel and King Ahab from the north, and they marry, and they have a baby. Her name is Athaliah. She's the daughter. She grows up, and she becomes queen in Judah, the southern kingdom, um, because she marries Jehoram. Okay, so Athaliah and Jehoram marry. They have a son. Um, They name the son Ahaziah. Ahaziah grows up, and now he's king in Judah. Well, he only gets to reign one year. He is king, but he gets killed. (laughs) But what does his dear mother, Athaliah, do upon hearing the news of her son's death? What does she do? Let's turn to 2 Kings 11, 1 to 3 to find out. Second Kings 11, 1. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring. Eeks, did you get that? Okay, see, after Ahaziah killed his mother, Athaliah is so zealous to rule as queen mother and control Judah, she rose and destroyed her grandkids, right? And her attempt to Purge the royal house of Judah brought 
the Davidic dynasty to the brink, the very brink of extinction, except, ta-da, enter my heroine, Jehoshaphat. Remember her? Okay, we mentioned her in point two. Look at 2 Kings 11.2, but Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons who were being put to death and placed him and his nurse in the bedroom. Shh, they hid in the house, not one year, not two, six years while Athaliah was reigning over the land. Wow, we just read an account of two women. You know, these women were related to each other by marriage. One, that wretched grandmother, Athaliah, and the other, a God-fearing aunt, Jehoshaphat, who would risk her own life in order to save her nephew from his grandma's murderous tyranny, and who, in thus doing, spares the Davidic lineage. I, I just can't help but think this narrative would make a great edge of your seat thriller blockbuster wouldn't it you know because it's kind of exciting and murder and intrigue but there's much more here that we need to stop and we need to look at and we need to apply it to our own lives and thinking about the household so here's the key point and this for me is very convicting i'm just gonna lay it out there we need to be on guard for our own hearts and our own households because we know that apart from rigorous heart shepherding, what could happen? Our hearts can become quickly hardened, self-grasping, self-serving, and even, yes, even murderous as we quickly get angry or frustrated with anyone and everyone who gets in the way of our reigning as queen mother in our own homes. As we think, you know what? This is my roost to rule. This is my kitchen, right? Watch out. Watch out. Because before you know it, you could become angry with somebody messing something up that you just cleaned up or whatever. You fill in the blank. Remember whose house it is in the first place? And remember, we came into the world with the exact same kind of sinful heart that they had. You know, that's why we must guard our hearts and lay them bare every day. We must before the word of God. And ladies, we must plead, shouldn't we? Plead with God for a heart, for our household, that matches, that's aligned to God's heart. We want to carry the same burden and the same concern for the household that God has. That's what it's all about. See, the fact is, we will impact our home and our family. We will. The question is how? That's the question we need to be asking ourselves. So we're going to take a five-minute break and...
come on back if you'd like to um, find a theme journal now. Um, they're there for you. And come on back in five minutes. Okay, we're going to get going again. Now we are on the bottom of page two. We're on number four. Moving right along. Um, we're going to be back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12. Now, context-wise, ladies, we're back on the plains of Moab, where Moses is reteaching the law to Israel. This is just 40 years after they left slavery in Egypt, long, long before the kings. Let's read Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12, and let's find out um, what Moses is warning them about. He says, then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a great, to give you great and splendid cities, which you did not build, and houses full of good things, which you did not fill, hewn cisterns, which you did not dig vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant and you eat and are satisfied what do you do then watch yourselves that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery okay let's practice one of our strategies let's paraphrase What did we just hear? What is the Lord warning them about? See? Do you see the words of danger? Maybe that's what you're saying to yourself. Here's one way you could do it. Caution, warning, danger. When you are full and satisfied, and when you're experiencing abundance and ease, you must be careful. Of what? What must you be careful of? Forget. forget, right. Don't forget. Who? The Lord. We'd never forget ourselves, would we? Don't forget the Lord. Why? What did he do? He rescued you from slavery. Yes, ladies, we have been rescued from slavery to sin, haven't we? Let's go two chapters over. Deuteronomy 8, 10 through 20. The warning here, full of caution and warning and heart shepherding, full of it. Look at for, uh, Deuteronomy eight ten. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware. So that would be a great theme to do someday, looking at all the warnings. Beware. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. What is the danger, ladies? What could happen to a heart that's not properly guarded? Do you see it? Verse 14. Look. Then your heart will become what? Proud. Another theme. Proud. And you will forget 
the Lord your God. You'll just forget. The Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So, recapping. When you're in what we might call a quote-unquote blessed situation, you know, when things are going well, that is the time to beware. That's the time to be concerned. We must, you know, what does God say could happen to our hearts in things like, in times like that? It says, God says, he says, you're going to forget about them. That's crazy. You're going to forget about them. And you know how you know you're going to forget about the Lord? Is you're not obeying. That's how you know. Mm -hmm. Why? You're not obeying because something's happened. You're deceiving yourself, right? Look at verse 17, how you're deceiving yourself. Right there. You might say in your heart, my power. Remember he just said you didn't build, you didn't dig, you didn't plant. Okay, you're going to say to yourself, my power and my strength of my hand, the strength of my hand has made me this wealth. Christian, you know, we've got to understand that the household, the very place of blessing can be at the exact same place that we forget the blessing giver. See, it's easy to forget God in the home. So be careful. But thankfully, I have great news. We need some good news. Because in Christ, the house can become the very platform for impacting everyone else in your household with the gospel. See, our households need to hear us talking often, right? About how grateful we are for God's provision. But ladies, I'm not just um, talking about the provision of stuff, you know? I'm not talking about that. If we don't cultivate this attitude of gratitude for the gospel, we may find ourselves living as if our greatest treasure and our greatest blessing are what belongs to us instead of us belonging to him. See the difference? That's what we need to treasure, us belonging to him. We're going to move on to page three, the impact of one's faith on the entire household. Well, we have four references there. Um, on your outline, we've got two from Acts, and the first bullet, and then the others are, they're all in Acts. But the first two on the first bullet, we're not going to really turn there. But I just want to quickly mention Cornelius, because, you know, sometimes we get to see this. When one house heart is changed for Christ, you know, an entire household is changed. Praise God. That's what happens to Cornelius. He is a Gentile, and he's a believer. And he wants to hear everything that Peter has to say. So he assembles his family and his friends in his household. And they hear what the Spirit of God says through Peter. And here's the key point. A whole household is impacted. Um, because why? One man was faithful to bring his home and the gospel together. Let's turn and find out about Lydia in Acts 16. As you're turning there to uh, chapter 16, verse 11, I'll give you a little background. 
She, um, Paul and Silas are in Philippi on the Sabbath, and you know, it was their custom. When there was no synagogue, they would go down to the river and they'd find a place to pray. And they sat down and they began to speak to the women who were gathered there. And in verse 14, we read that there's one woman listening. She's from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple cloth. Her name is, do you all know her, who? Lydia, right. Uh, she is a worshiper of God already. Um, but she gets her heart opened and hears the gospel. And what does she do? What does she do? She brings her household and the gospel together. It makes a huge impact. They're all baptized, right? An entire household is changed and they grew, and they are faithful. Why? Because Lydia was faithful. Now, just a few verses over, in um, 1622 through 34, it's the Philippian jailer, and you know the story. You know there was an uprising, and after Paul commanded that demon to come out of that slave girl, and then verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 22, tells us what happens. There's a crowd, and they attack them, and the magistrates had them stripped and beaten with rods, inflicted many blows, and they threw them in prison. And the jailer says, um, the jailer is told to guard them securely. So here's what he does. He puts them in the innermost cell and secures their feet to a stake. I would say that's pretty secure, wouldn't you? Ah. Uh, they're not going anywhere. <laughs> but you know the story. Paul and Silas, they're worshiping God. And you know, the, I'll tell it real quick. The earthquake, you know, the chains fall off. The guard ready to kill himself. Paul says, no, wait, we're here. He tells them the gospel, right? And instead of the jailer getting death, he gets eternal life. Yay! What does he do? He brings the gospel and his household together. And guess what? The whole family is saved. Hurrah! But this is very important. We've got to remember, that's up to God, right? If God chooses to save a whole household like that, that's up to him. But whether he chooses to do that or not, a whole household can be influenced, right? And impacted. Because one believer just takes one. That impact that one believer can have on the household is huge. It's beyond words. See, God desires, ladies, to use us in that same way. He desires to have us bring the household and the gospel together every day. How do we do this effectively? You know what? You're saying it to yourself in your head. I can see those little speech bubbles, right? What's happening? What do you do? You bring your heart every day. First and foremost, you bring it to the gospel truth. You've got to marinate in it. So when you poke, get poked, gospel juices come flowing out of you, right? You're marinating in it. You must live it. You must become the hands and feet of Christ. But, capital B-U-T, let's move on to number six. Because if God thinks that way about the household and exhorts, his people, right, from the Old Testament to the New Testament to think that way of the house on the household. Do you think we should be surprised 
If the household is under attack, should that surprise us? No. Look at 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 with me. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding on to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Oh, that's awful, right? Yuck. Well, what are we told to do? Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women who are weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never coming to the knowledge of truth. Well, let's first talk about those ungodly men. What will they do? What are they going to do? They're going to, what? Enter in, right? To households. And then they're going to captivate those weak women. Have you ever wondered, well, what does a weak woman look like? Don't you wonder? You know, what, what's a weak woman? Well, let's find out. Look at verse 6. There's your answer. They're weighed down by sins. They're carried away with various impulses. See, ladies, they're perfect prey for these false teachers, right? They soak in everything that the false teacher says to them. Why? You know, have you ever wondered, how, how do the women get that way? Do you see it? Do you see it? See, they aren't equipped well to deal with their sin and their sinful desires. Please listen, this is important. They aren't equipped well with the gospel, ladies. They don't know how to deal with those sinful desires. Here's another way we can put it. They don't know how the gospel addresses or dethrones their impulses, their desires, and changes them for godly desires. They don't know how to do that. And they're always learning, aren't they? Something, right? But it's not hard shepherding to the word of God to get the knowledge of the truth. So what happens to them? They're vulnerable to attack. And you know, we've got to observe here, how does the attack come in the household in the first place? You know, does it have to break in, barge in? No, look at Verse 6, it's, they simply enter. Enter. It's like the doormat is, the welcome mat is out, the door is wide open. Come on in. Right? But here's the point. We've got to stop and we've got to ask ourselves, we must. Okay? We've got to say, what influences are we welcoming into our homes? Come on in. Open door, welcome mat out. What are we exposing ourselves to? Blogs, 
shows on TV, movies, entertainment, books, magazines. I mean, you fill in the blank. See, ladies, we have got to be vigilant because attacks against the Christian household, um, they often come disguised, right? They look kind of benign, harmless, don't they? I mean, if, the, if it were pretty obvious, we'd probably not. It would be too obvious. So they come disguised. They're appealing. So if you're not sure, what should you do? If you're not sure, ask. Okay? If you're married, ask your husband. If you're living at home, ask your dad. Ask your small group leader. Ask to help you say, would you help me scrutinize my choices? Will you do that? You know, we remember, we must guard what we're keeping out. But remember, we also must guard what we're keeping in, right? That was last time's lesson. We've got to seek God with our whole heart. And that's why our best protection is to be in the word daily, to shepherd our heart well with those disciplines, those wellspring disciplines. And you know what? Our greatest joy, it shouldn't be in what other people say, right? Our greatest joy should be in God. It should come from the Lord. And that's why Psalm 1611 is on your outline. And it says, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forever. See, being disciplined in the wellspring disciplines, it helps us avoid being weak women. It does. Being disciplined in the disciplines, it helps us to fight. Um, We have biblical biceps. Did you know that? You can fight it. The more you're in the word, the more you can. Um, Look again at Psalm 1611. The word reveals the path of life. That's why we spend so much time on Discipline One. Because if we're not women who get Discipline One, if we don't shepherd our hearts to Jesus Christ through his word, if we don't use the gospel to fuel our repentance and grow in holiness, we're going to pose a threat to our household, and to the church, and beyond with the gospel, right? We're going to pose a threat. We're vulnerable. Ladies, we are. We're vulnerable to believing lies and drinking in that Kool-Aid and then passing it right along, you know, to those closest to us. But here's the good news. I want to give us good news. When we spend time basking in the word of God, in your presence is fullness of joy in your right hand or pleasures forever. We will experience abundant joy. We will. As we unfold the riches of his glorious grace, we'll become exposed to sin. And as you do that, you're going to desire more and more God. And those things aren't going to become as important to you anymore. You'll be eager to let them go. See, by God's grace, I've seen that happen in my own life. That's cool. So let's go on to number seven. We have two more, seven, eight, and nine. So the family home can become an obstacle to the gospel. You know, we have to remember, ladies, that even though, yes, we're all women, we're all daughters, somebody's daughter, somebody's granddaughters, we're all in different stages of life, but first and foremost, we have to remember our identity is in Christ. That's who we need to identify with, our kingdom family, not our earthly family. So yes, we may have 
things that we do in our family we grew up in. Um, maybe you have a tendency to be one way or another. We don't identify with that. We're able to first and foremost identify in Christ. Here it is. And we put everything else under that identity. And that's why you have the little clip art there for that. Okay, Everything can be transformed when we have this right. We're a new creation. You know, so um, there might be times when you have to do what's right rather than make someone happy in your home. That's hard. True, it is hard. But nevertheless, ladies, we've got to do what's right. We must. Remember how negatively it was spoken of with Eli? Yeah. If you're not going to honor your husband or your children or your parents more, then you honor the Lord. You know, in Matthew 10, 39, 34 through 39, Jesus says, Do not think I came to bring peace, but a sword, right? For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And get this, verse 36, one's enemies will be those of the household. You see, sometimes we see, yeah, the whole family becomes believers like in Cornelius the Philippian jailer praise the Lord but Jesus is teaching you know what that's not always the case when we bring the gospel to our family we might actually find that our household members become our enemies John MacArthur puts it this way he says though the ultimate end of the gospel is peace with God the immediate result of the gospel frequently is conflict you know so ladies what happens when the family begins to stay in the way or stand in the way of the gospel, what do you do? Okay, you follow Christ, right? Not your family. Even when you stay in the family, carrying away, you stay there, right? You love, you serve, you forgive. I have to keep reminding myself, okay, my identity is in Christ. No one and nothing else. You know, and that's why I can love and esteem and serve those closest to me. I can, regardless of their reactions, because of the gospel's impact on my life. I can. See, our behavior always gives way. It gives away, actually, who we identify with, doesn't it? That's why you have that that stuff written there, um, some examples. It's because I used to, because I am part Irish, and I and my dad is always saying, oh, we have tempers. And I used to say, well, that's just the way we are. You know, we're part Irish. Or my dad, just some, some people may say, my dad just never was a huggy, feely person. Our family, we just didn't do that. So, Or we just didn't ever ask to forgive each other. We just kind of gave ourselves space. I don't know, you fill in the blank. You can't do that. Right? That's no excuse because you are identified with Christ. That's what that's all about in there. You put your identity underneath. Um, your identity. You put your identity in Christ first and everything else falls into place. Well, let's look at number eight. Submission to a husband requires a strong grasp of the gospel. You know, we just can't talk about the household. You can't without talking about marriage, Right? You can't. Uh, it's, it's a picture of Christ and the church. We are going to talk about marriage in further lessons. That's coming up. 
But the key passage we're going to visit is Ephesians 5, 22 through 25. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject, ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave herself up for that. In our rebellious society we live in now that celebrates the redefinition of marriage. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you, how well do you understand biblical marriage? Okay, we're going to get to that in further lessons, but think about it. See, because whether you're married or not, you've got to know. It's a key, it's key in helping you be a strong Christian woman, not a foolish, weak woman. So married or not, we need to be the kind of women that treasure, right, and support and build up marriages in how we think about marriage, how we talk about marriage, and how we respond to marriage. When we think about marriage, we think about submission. Christ submitted himself to the Father, husbands submit themselves to the leadership of the Lord, and wives submit themselves to their husband's leadership. So if you have a husband, he is your leader. You know, at those times when you struggle to follow that earthly leader, you can still follow him. You can. Why? Because your heavenly father, your heavenly leader, is faithful and trustworthy. He's sovereign. He's good. That's where we rest our confidence in. That's where we rest our confidence in. And that's why we can submit to our husbands. And that's why we can encourage each other to do the same. You know, let's look at one. Let's leave this lesson by looking at one Old Testament, I'm sorry, New Testament model of marriage. Priscilla and Aquila, the dynamic duo of the New Testament. They're a believing team. They strengthened the gospel wherever they went. Their story is in Acts. You know... When you think of them, you can think of them as being, as that team being right alongside each other. They weren't glued to the hip, and they weren't running around doing their own thing either. But when they came together, they were so impactful. And they impacted, um, you can read their story here, how they impacted Apollos for the gospel. Paul talks about them later and says how they even risked their life for the gospel. Wow. So let's sum up where we've been. It's time to kind of take those power walking shoes off now and kind of go, wow, we, we covered so much. Let's recap. Let's wrap up. We've seen that a woman who loves God and places a priority on her household, I'm sorry, places a priority on the spiritual influence of her household with her heart for the gospel of Jesus Christ, she has a lot to say, doesn't she? That's a woman we want to model ourselves after. That's a woman who can be useful. Glory, can you repeat that? Yes. We've seen that a woman who loves God places a priority on the spiritual influence of her household. Let's just put it that way. 
has a heart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, ladies, that's why we put discipline two right after discipline one. You know, there's no room to wriggle around that, is there? It's our responsibility to bring a gospel aroma into our households. It's our responsibility to use the gospel to guard our hearts and to protect our households, right? It's our responsibility to root out thinking, any thinking that is devoid of the gospel and could come in and deceive us and deceive our families. Yeah. We better pray and ask for God's help. Father God, we, you know, I'm just so thankful that I think as a mom, I, I tried to protect my kids from the icky stuff. Um, and that was right. But Lord, Father God, you do not protect us from the icky stuff. You put it right there in the Bible for us to read, the good examples and the bad for us to learn from. Lord, I praise my plea that we would be women who would be those kind of women who bring a gospel aroma first to ourselves every day, preaching it to ourselves, then to our households, and then beyond. Lord, please help us to root out false thinking. It's so important. Help us to do that. Thank you that you've given us the tools to do that. And I just pray that the time and discussion group would be rich today. We thank you so much for it. In your son's name, amen.